The heavy summer air is blanketing the city, making everything seem like a hallucination. I'm sprawled across my mattress in a tank top and underwear. My fingers lazily slipped beneath the waistband. I'd kicked the sheets off my bed sometime during another fitful night's sleep long ago. Now, all I could think about was how my sweat was seeping into the mattress, never to be cleaned, but I couldn't be bothered to exert the energy it took to make the bed again. My mind wanders back to an old one-night stand. I had woken the next morning to roll onto a patch of dampness. He was standing over me, sheepishly talking about how he had spilled some water. I let him tell his story, but as soon as he left an hour later, I threw back the sheets to indeed reveal a splash of yellow. So, the mattress has already been fucked for a while now, anyway. My cat, Bastet, jumps onto the bed and begins stomping around indiscriminately, crushing my windpipe as he traipses across my neck, smashing my nipple as she wanders over my chest, tickling my feet with her belly fluff, perilously descending her exposed asshole onto my cheek until I open my eyes and swat her away. I've forgotten to buy cat food, and so, for the last three days that I had been holed up in my apartment, Bestet, both to her consternation and delight, was kept alive by me sharing my meals. A miniature bowl of cereal each morning, a square of peanut butter and jelly for lunch, a pile of buttery noodles for dinner, and midnight bites of popcorn. I mentally scanned my kitchen cabinets and the shelves of my fridge. I've been playing it fast and loose with what cats were supposed to eat already but I'm pretty sure a dusty old box of Little Debbies and a shot of whiskey weren't going to cut it. If there's anything cats are good for, it's for getting you out of the house. With a groan, I pull myself out of bed with melodramatic flair and trudge around my room, picking up various pieces of clothing from the floor until I've assembled something resembling an outfit. I grab my bag and head out the door, making my way down through the levels of smells. My floor, wet rice. Next floor, curry. Next floor, garlic. As I step outside, a rush of panic comes over me, but I quickly stifle it, pressing forward down the sidewalk. over the last six months I've been living in this apartment. I duck inside, beelining to the shelf of cat food in the back corner, an act that always makes me feel self-conscious. Then I go to the deli and order a bacon, egg, and cheese, even though I'm pretty sure the last time I puked for reasons unrelated to alcohol could be traced back to this same sandwich from the same deli counter. But hey, for two dollars, he couldn't beat it. Emboldened by the sunlight, I decide to go to the library, get myself something to read so that at least I can be an educated hermit. I walk over to Flatbush and flag down a van. I climb my way to the second row and pull out my sandwich as the van lurches forward, trying to ignore the sucking of teeth from the women around me. We swerve our way up Flatbush, screeching over to the curb as hands shoot out from between parked cars or passengers call out street names. As the arch of Grand Army Plaza comes into view, I yell out my stop and the driver hits the brakes hard, slamming us all into the seats in front of us. I love the bombastic display of the central library. 
And it always makes me feel like I'm on my way to do work about most importance as I rush up the steps to the gleaming gold and imposing columns. The sheer reverence of it all for reading. It's something that makes me feel at home here. I pass through the rush of the lobby to the elevators and make my way up to the old, hushed bowels of the building, picking a room and diving in. I snake through the shelves, stopping here and there to pull out a book and flip through it. I have very distinct memories of visiting the library every week as a child with my mother and bringing home a pile of books chosen at random, not really believing my luck that I could just walk away with them. I mimic my childhood self and bring a stack of books over to a sagging armchair and sink into it with them resting on my lap. I'm skimming through the first chapter of the third book when I can't ignore the pain in my lower back any longer. I didn't want to fault the library for having a dingy old armchair, but no matter how I shift, it feels like some spring has come loose and is digging into my back. I blindly feel the cushion behind me, trying to find the culprit. When I land on something hard, I realize it's not a spring, but in fact, the corner of a book that must have slipped in the crack between the cushions. I pull it out. Not a book, but a notebook. A plain black notebook with the edges of its covers slightly fraying. I open it, assuming I'd find the scribbled notes of a student doing research. But instead, there are a few pages of names, and the rest is blank. I look around me as if its owner would be immediately in my sight, frantically searching the floor for their lost notebook. But with the exception of the person I can hear shuffling along a few shelves down, I'm alone. I turn back to the book and trace my finger along the list of names, taking an odd amount of pleasure from feeling the indents of the words into the page. Some names have parenthetical notations next to them with other bits of information. A neighborhood here, a year there, sometimes the name of another country. I don't recognize any of the names, shooting down my best guess, based on my surroundings, that it's a list of historical figures. But I guess I'm not the biggest of history buffs. The names tug at some primal part of me. It's the feeling I had always chased after as a kid when I'd go digging around abandoned houses, or the seemingly useless rooms of old relatives' homes, or my neighbors' sheds I'd sneak into when I knew they'd be preoccupied with meals. I couldn't help but have a thrill of intruding on something I was never meant to see. It could be a perfectly innocuous list of names, but nonetheless, my imagination runs wild. I close the notebook and slip it into my bag with my crumpled sandwich wrapper and cans of cat food, grab two books at random, and head downstairs to check out. winding her way around my legs as I go to the kitchen to give her her first real meal in days. The kitchen is the only other room besides my bedroom that isn't filled with boxes. I keep a little pathway clear through the living room, but mostly it's filled with small towers of boxes, some open with their contents half spilling out, others sagging from the weight of those on top of them. Underneath some are the old pieces of living room furniture, a chintzy couch with matching armchair, a garishly baroque dining table with two rickety chairs, a tarnished side table. They peek out among the mess like faded Polaroids, memories of what the apartment used to be. 
I had been sitting in a cafe when I got the call. My grandmother, my only living family member, had passed away, quietly, in her sleep, and the apartment was now mine. I burst into tears, ugly, open-mouthed sobbing, snot dripping into my latte. That's one of the great things about this city. If you need to cry, people let you cry. All our emotions out on display. Everyone is silent understanding that life is hard and sometimes you need to scream that. I've seen men in suits crying with their heads in their hands. Messy public breakups. Frenzied young professionals slamming the subway doors of the train they just missed. Tears streaming down their faces that are clearly over something bigger than arriving seven minutes later than they were expecting. I wasn't necessarily crying because my grandmother was dead. Grandparents' deaths aren't really worth public sobbing past the age of 10. I was crying because I moved to New York three years ago, partially out of some self-induced sense of duty to be near her, to take care of her in her old age and make some effort to have a family in that Norman Rockwell sense of the word. And yet, it took just eight months for my dedicated weekly visits to start happening at a less frequent rate. My commitment devolved to seeing her every few months, to a phone call now and then, to only bothering at the holidays. When I got the call, I couldn't remember the last time we had talked, and for what reason. I kept telling myself I was busy, but in reality my time was being spent binge-watching TV, drinking until I blacked out, throwing myself into one whirlwind love affair with one aimless Byronic hero after another. The truth was she just didn't matter to me anymore. I left her alone and forgotten. I was crying out of an ugly, guilty, desperate sort of sadness. I was crying because I was finally completely alone, and I knew I deserved to be. When I moved into her apartment, all arched doorways and crown molding, I tried to do the adult thing and, I think they call it, take care of her estate. But after only a few days of attempting to sort through her things, I became too filled with self-loathing to finish the task. I'd unpacked half of my things and packed half of hers, and the boxes left behind from each had remained in the living room ever since. Her guest room turned into an odd mismatch of both our lives that now served as my bedroom, while her room remains pristine, just as she left it, a tower of boxes pushed up against the door. There's a part of me that hates living here, constantly reminded of my own awfulness. But I'm living in a two-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn rent-free. Let's be honest. I would have lived here even if her body was still decomposing in her bed. This would be Dorothy. It's something I need to get used to again. Knocking. I was accustomed to the warning of the buzzer, that distance that gave you time to prepare. Knocking now felt so immediate, so invasive. You only have one door between you. I peer through the peephole just in case, but of course I only see Dorothy's distorted face. She lives downstairs, on the garlic floor, and had been a friend of my grandmother's. I didn't meet her until the funeral, but she approached me so casually and confidently that I got the unnerving feeling I'd known her for years. By the end of sitting Shiva, we were friends. Hello, dear, hello. She's carrying a Pyrex casserole dish with oven mitts, and she pushes her way past me to the kitchen. I brought you some kugel, no raisins this time. I don't mean to be nosy, but I hadn't noticed you outside the house in a while, and I wanted to make sure you're being fed. I'm about to brag to her about going outside today, but then I realized that, while I'd remembered the cat food, I forgot to get human groceries which somehow seems like the more embarrassing option. Thank you. Now, where's your familiar? On cue, Bastet comes running into the kitchen, 
rubbing her forehead against Dorothy's shin, causing her pantyhose to sag even further down. Dorothy scoops her up in her arms. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. This is the prettiest pussycat I have ever seen. She punctuates this with wet kisses on Bastet's head. She sets her down and turns back to me. It's nearing dinner time, so eat this before it gets cold. Or should we just eat right now? Let's eat. She casually starts bringing things out of cabinets and drawers as if it were her own kitchen. So how are you? What's new with you? Oh, um, not all that much. Find a job yet? I'd quit my job a few weeks into moving into the apartment. Without the burden of rent, I didn't want to waste my energy answering phones for an advertising agency anymore. It was time to focus on my dreams of being an illustrator. It was already my selling out, plan B version of my dreams of being an artist, but it turns out your more practical dreams aren't exactly easy to make come true either. Just a couple of freelancing things here and there. Fine, in that case, find a man yet? Even less luck there. Dorothy stops mid-scoop to look at me, astonished, with her hands on her hips. Anna, this I don't understand. How can the most beautiful, most talented, smartest girl in New York have so much trouble finding a man? What's wrong with these schmucks? She says it with such passion I almost believe the problem isn't me. I shrug at her. This city is teeming with nice Jewish boys. I walk around the neighborhood in my promenades and my head's swiveling all over the place thinking, Woo! If only I were 50 years younger. What's wrong with them, huh? They're all with Asians and Shikses. Pah! Fucking Woody Allen. He ruined it for all of us. Dorothy drops the serving of kugel onto the plate with such force I think it's going to break. She balances the dishes on her forearm, goes to the living room, pushes the boxes on the dining table over to one side without an inkling of judgment, and drags the chairs out from underneath an armful of winter coats. Sit. Eat. Dorothy and I had talked for two hours over dinner. Well, she had done most of the talking. People who love to talk tend to be very fond of me. They always think I'm a great friend, and they never seem to realize they think that because I'm one of the only people in their lives to be content to sit quietly as they unravel an endless stream of words in my general direction without me much caring if I ever get a word in edgewise. This works out just fine for me because I like to listen, and sitting silently next to a person means that I'm not sitting silently alone. That ache is creeping back into the pit of my stomach. My mind is simultaneously running at 100 miles per hour and feeling like it's trudging through mud. As always after Dorothy visits, I'm thinking of my grandmother, my parents. I let my thoughts wander to Nick, to the roommate in college I'd had a huge falling out with, to the best friend I hadn't seen since fourth grade. I think of Sue and Martha and Sarah and David. I think of Ben, Teddy, Linda, and Marissa. I think of Tom Sawyer, the cat I'd raised from a kitten who died my first year of college, and I devoted more journal pages to his death than I did for my mother's. I think of the boy who humiliated me sophomore year of high school when he announced to our table in the cafeteria that I had dick-sucking lips. I think of the man in the subway who held his phone in front of my face to take pictures of me for five stops straight and how I sat there, motionless, 
afraid, and how when I got home that day, I finally decided to buy pepper spray on Amazon. I think of all the things I'd wish I'd said to him. I think of dragging him to the swinging platform in between train cars and holding him down, his head inches from the tracks as we barrel through the tunnel, watching his face contort in terror, not letting him up until he could repeat the first three paragraphs of the scum manifesto back to me without stopping to scream. I let myself sink into that misery so delicious it's almost arousing. I lean over my bed to get my vibrator, but instead I grab my bag and pull out the notebook I'd found at the library. I read the list of names again. I roll onto my side and curl up, holding the notebook against my chest like a child. After a few moments, I feel around under the covers for my phone and pull it out from under a bestette. I open the notebook, pick a name at random, and Google it. To my surprise, I'm greeted with the smiling face of a middle-aged woman. She has a Facebook and a few articles written about her to announce the opening of her cafe in Park Slope. I pick another name. He's on the staff page of the Museum of Natural History and has authored several articles for scientific journals I need a subscription to a database to read. Another. She owns an esoteric shop in Bushwick and appears to unironically be a member of a coven. Another comes up only as a name mentioned on the New York Historical Society's blog in a post featuring snapshots of the pages of an old journal. The short blurb merely says, This is a journal of a man identified as Samuel Needleman, thought to arrive from Hungary in 1938. I sit up, my heart starting to race as I flip through the pages of names. Who are these people? I thought the answer was lost in the mind of some stranger I'd never find, but suddenly they seem real, tangible. The answer feels just out of reach, something I could actually discover. I look at Bastet, who, sensing my stare, opens one eye at me. Do you think I should do it? Bastet closes her eye and curls deeper into a ball. I look from the notebook to my phone and back again. Yeah, I think I should too. Thank you.